Well, good morning again. Thank you, Mark, for an enthusiastic presentation of the announcements. Yeah, next week, we will, during the announcement time, we will present the new Sunday school classes that we will have coming up. So be ready for that. We'll have the, the leaders of the classes. We'll give you a short presentation on the new choices that you will have. And Lord willing, two weeks from today, we'll actually start those classes. So that's something to, to look forward to. My screen is off in the back here. But. A lady by the name of Mamie Adams always went to a very specific branch of the post office in her town because the employees there were friendly. And she enjoyed going there. And one year just before Christmas, she went to buy stamps and found that the line was particularly long. She wasn't bothered by that, however. But someone pointed out to her that there was no need to wait in line because there was a stamp machine in the lobby. Oh, I know, she said, but the machine won't ask me about my arthritis. <laughs> she wanted the personal touch and the kindness that she found at the post office, not just with the efficiency of the machine. And I think that illustration taps into something that strikes each of us in a deep way. We all know the way that we like to be treated. And often we have a response that is ready if something is not quite done according to our expectations. But how often is it that we take the time to consider how others would like to be treated? How often might we be willing to adjust our schedules or our program or maybe even our speed limits to accommodate those around us? In the passage that Jesus is going to lead us through today, he continues to show us how life in the kingdom, life for those that are in the spirit, looks different than those who are not in the spirit of God, who are still in the kingdoms of men. And so the challenge that he will give us after talking to us about how we should treat one another is what path are you on? And to consider where that path will end and to consider what the end of that path will be. And so it is today that we're going to take some time to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. And I invite you once again to stand as we read God's word this morning and as we prepare to study. And the divinely inspired and divinely authoritative word of God says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us receive it for its intended blessing this morning. Please be seated. Beginning in chapter 7 of, of the Gospel of Matthew, we see that there is a change in focus on what Jesus is emphasizing in the Sermon on the Mount. We saw that he'd spent some time talking about what the law is to be intended for and how it is to be interpreted. We saw how he was focusing on disciplines of prayer and fasting and, and generosity. We've seen already in chapter 7 that he has warned his disciples against judging one another harshly and giving unfair criticism. He says, deal first with the beams in your own eyes, with your own sins, before attempting to help others with theirs. He has challenged his disciples to handle wisely the holy things of God in the midst of a sinful world. 
the world that Jesus even describes as having dogs and pigs who will not value the things of God. And, And we saw that in order for us to do that, we need to spend time in prayer. We need God's wisdom, and so we ask and seek and knock, how can we handle the things of God wisely? How can we discern things correctly? And we need his wisdom in order to act in ways that are honoring to him. And that need for wisdom continues. And so we keep on praying. But we have a heavenly father who is ready and willing to answer. He just calls on us to seek him in the way that he has said. To seek him in his righteousness first and above all else. And that we are reminded that father does know best. And is delighted to give it to us as we pray according to his will. All that is just to get us ready for the passage we're going to look at this morning. Two simple points. We're going to take some time to look at it because they're challenging. The first point is the golden rule. As Jesus continues to teach his disciples how to deal with others, he's talked to them about how to deal with one another as brothers and sisters, how to deal with outsiders in the world. He's continuing to teach with how we are to interact with one another in the wisdom that we need. If, in fact, we are born again of the Spirit of God, if, in fact, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, our lives will look different than those that are still living among the kingdoms of men. But in order for us to live that way, we need to spend time with the Father in prayer, strengthened by His Spirit, guided by His Word, walking with our Savior. Each day we need to come to the realization that we are not wise enough, nor good enough, to do the things of God well. We need his wisdom that he gives only as we seek and pray and try to please him with our lives. So our text begins this morning. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 12 is sort of a pivotal verse of this part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's directly attached to what comes before and what comes after. And some people even want to isolate it as a standalone verse. But I think it's good to keep it in its context where we see how it fits in. As we are praying then and asking and seeking and knocking and how we should ask, the application becomes, well, do to others what you would have them do to you. This verse has been called over the centuries the golden rule. One tradition has it that it came from the example of an early emperor named Alexander Severus who actually wrote in gold these verses, this verse on the walls of his royal bedroom. I guess he wanted to be reminded as a leader how he was to retreat those under his charge. But whatever may be the origin, it's not so much the, the words that are golden as the content itself because they show the great value of the gospel and of those who have been touched by it. And in fact, it's an easy saying. We can say it quite easily, but it turns out that it's very difficult to follow. In fact, it is positively difficult. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, various forms of the golden rule exist in different civilizations and societies of the past, but they're usually found in the negative form. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. And even a discussion among Jewish leaders, there's a famous encounter one day between the two main schools of thought of Jews in the time of Jesus and a Gentile, the school of Shema'i and the school of Hillel. And as they encountered this Gentile, he gave out the challenge to them, to each of these leaders, the Gentile. He said, I want you to stand on one leg 
and summarize the law with the expectation that if you can't break it down to its basic understanding essence, it's too complicated. Well, the leader of the Shammai movement, they had all kind of complicated rules and regulations. And in fact, they thought the Gentiles could not be saved because they were rejected by God. And so why should he waste his time talking to this Gentile leader? And he just told them to move on. But the leader of the Hillel movement, they were the evangelists, if you will. They were the ones from where the Pharisees came. They wanted to see the Gentiles converted. Paul himself, that is his background, of the Hillel movement forming then the Pharisees where he had an idea of winning the Gentiles to whatever his movement was. And so the leader of the Hillel movement, given the same exact challenge, stand on one leg and give a summary of the law, said this. What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. But notice that as he gives a summary of the law, he gives it in the negative version, the negative form. Do not do to your fellow creatures what you do not want done to you. So ask yourself the question then, how do you like to be treated by others? How do you like to be spoken to? How do you like to have decisions made for or with you? How do you interact with others? Jesus says that as fellow believers, we're to offer help and encouragement to one another, not harsh criticism and judgment. As we interact with God, we can pray in confidence because he invites us to come and says he will, in fact, answer our prayers as we pray according to his will. As he gives us wisdom and, and guides us, we'll not spend so much time confessing the specks in another brother's eye, but we'll take care of the beams that are in our own. We will do for others what we desire that they do for us. And what Jesus is underlying this morning is the importance of a very important biblical truth that we all know, but it's good for us to be reminded of. And that is each person we meet is created in the image of God. Each person that we meet was uniquely designed by God with his stamp, his image on that person created with great value and great potential. Now, yes, we did fall into sin through our first parents, and all of us have followed that pattern, but that did not erase the image of God. It did corrupt it, as it were, but it did not erase it. We are to serve those around us and interact with them in a way that honors them as image bearers of God and that honors the God in whose image they are created. And it's at that point that we're reminded this is a great challenge. Because we know we're still dealing with junk in our own hearts. Sometimes we find it hard enough just to live with ourselves. And then try to live with these other folks out there that are doing equally bad and dumb and silly things. But we're called to treat one another in a way that is honoring to them. So how do we typically treat those that are different than us, those outsiders, those ones who are not among us or not from us, who do things in a different way? Would non-Christians feel comfortable being among us? Or would they stay away because they would feel the scorn of judgment coming upon the back of their head? How would we respond if suddenly the doors opened and a homeless person came in unshowered and disheveled and sat in the back row? What if a single mother came in that we didn't know with a whole brood of kids that were noisy and carrying on? How would we receive them? Or what if some people came in from that alphabet community? You know which one I'm talking about. 
how would we receive them? Would they recognize that this is a place of grace, a grace of mercy, a grace, a place of acceptance? As Jesus is teaching us here, he doesn't give a negative form of the golden rule. He gives a positive form. Now, there are challenges to the negative form, but the positive form is far more demanding. If we think about it, the negative form, don't do to others what you don't want done to you, can actually be fulfilled in large measure by doing literally nothing. I don't want to be robbed, so I'm not going to rob you. I don't want to be beaten up, so I'm not going to beat you up. I don't want to be slandered or mocked, so I won't do that to you. It can be fulfilled by basically doing nothing. But Jesus turns it around. And he gives the positive form, which is far more demanding. It requires intentionality. It requires an understanding of justice and mercy and kindness and compassion. And notice the word whatever. It's all-encompassing. Whatever is loving or helpful or truthful or beneficial or kind or, or, or useful, that is what we are to actively seek to do for others. It doesn't let us off the hook by simply saying, well, I haven't hurt anyone. It says, no, we will actively be doing good to others. And the word here is you, plural. It's for all of the disciples of Jesus Christ. It's an ongoing command that of expected behavior of all of those who belong to Jesus Christ. So you do a little study of yourself. We all have different personalities. We all have a different set of experiences, but we all have an understanding of Mercy, justice, compassion, truth. What shows blessing and love to you? What do you want to receive? If you like to receive things, maybe be about the business of giving things to others. If you like being appreciated and loved, show appreciation and love to others. If you like being encouraged and supported, encourage and support others. If you like being helped and treated with dignity, then be sure to do the same for others. You see, this doesn't happen by accident. This is a way of life. It requires action that is planned, that is outward, that is other-focused. It requires energy and effort and even some sacrifice. It is a positively difficult command. Yet when done in the power of, of the word and the power of the spirit, it fulfills God's law. For this, Jesus said, is the law and the prophets. If we were to take some time to look at the Old Testament law, we would see that it is full of provisions for all kinds of circumstances. How to deal with contracts, how to deal with possessions, how to handle conflicts, how to show love to one another, how to serve your neighbors, how to take care of widows, orphans, and aliens. Jesus is underscoring what the summary of the law and the prophets is. And notice the word is in this statement this is the law and the prophets jesus says that the golden rule sums up the law in the prophets now at least three times in the gospel of matthew jesus has talked about the law and the prophets in chapter 5 17 and 18 he said he came to fulfill them all here in chapter 7 verse 12 he says that the golden rule is, is the summary of those laws in 2240, he says that the law is summarized by love of God and love of neighbor. And this was carried on. The early church understand, understood these commands. For example, we have Paul writing to the church 
in Rome. And in chapter 13, he says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. James, the half-brother of our Lord, wrote, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now we know these things. We've heard some of these things even in Sunday school, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we're to show good to them, we're to do good things to them. But how often are we faithful in following through? So do a little thought experiment with me. How different would the world be? How different would your life be? How different would our church be? How different would our community be if believers were actually to actively live out this command? And to do those good things to others. The British Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, that all men acted on this verse. And then there would be no slavery, no war, no sweating, no striking, no lying, no robbing. But all would be justice and love. What a great kingdom is this which has such a law. This is code Christian. If we were to take Jesus at his word and live accordingly, would it not eliminate most of the problems we face on a regular basis? And then would it not accomplish far more in the world than any of our energies in the flesh could ever accomplish? Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then it's just at this point when we hear the edge and the point of Jesus' words that we realize how helpless we really are. How hopeless we really are left to ourselves. We wait around too much for others to act when we should act. We don't love God like we should. We don't love our neighbors as we should. We don't do for others what we would like done to us. And when we come face to face with that reality, our only response can be on our knees before the cross and say, oh, thank God for a Savior who lived this out perfectly and who indwells within us and now empowers us to go out and do the same. And as he empowers us in his spirit, he enables us to do this because it is the Jesus way. Loving God completely and loving our neighbors truly, Jesus says, is the law and the prophets and they hang, everything hangs on those two things. And he said he came to fulfill them all. And as we follow the example of Jesus, we recognize that he modeled and lived out the love of God and love of neighbor to perfection. No one ever prayed like Jesus, trusted in the Father like Jesus, took pleasure in pleasing God like Jesus. No one ever loved his neighbor like Jesus, gave to others like Jesus, taught like Jesus, sought the best for others like Jesus. He lived out the golden rule. And how did he do it? He left it all. He left it all the glories of heaven so that others might inherit it all. He suffered so that others might not suffer eternally. He lived and died so that others might die to sin and self and live for God and his kingdom. He humbled himself so that others might be exalted. He suffered injustice so that others might experience mercy. He loved others so that they might know what love is. He loved truly 
fully, sacrificially, humbly. He fulfilled the golden rule. And because he did, and because he now indwells in us through the Holy Spirit of God, he empowers us to go out and do likewise. And so, as we repent from how we have fallen, as we confess our sins and our weaknesses and our poor decisions that we have made and not fighting against our sinful nature, in the power of God, we can say thank you that we are forgiven. Thank you that we are set free. And then as we think about how God has treated us, we can go out and treat others in the same way. In other words, if we see all that Christ is and all that he has done, we should treasure him more and more above all things. And then if Christ is our treasure, we will desire to live out the golden rule. It will no longer be something that is a burden or that is a struggle. It will become a delight and a lifestyle and something that we want to be involved in. If you have the spirit of life in you, you can live a spiritual life to serve others. If you've been touched by the kindness of the Father, you can act in similar ways towards others. As one commentator says, kindness makes a person attractive. If you would win the world, melt it. Do not hammer it. This is what Jesus did. We're told in the Gospel of John that he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But he will come back again, and that will be then the day of judgment. But now we are in the day of grace, and we can go out and live the golden rule as Christ commands. Our second major point then is a tale of two paths. A tale of two paths. In this section that follows and finishes out the sermon at the end of chapter 7, Jesus is going to give four examples that contrast the difference between those that are in the kingdom of heaven and those that are still living as among the kingdom of men. He's going to contract two ways, two types of fruit, two kinds of followers, two kinds of builders. And with each one, Jesus will contrast true discipleship with merely human religious activity. And he will mention a lot on doing. There will be a lot of emphasis on doing. But it's those who do the things of God who will show that they truly belong to him. Their lives will be marked by joy, by fruitful obedience, by humble surrender to his will. But those who continue to act according to the ways of the flesh will show they do not belong to God. And their lives will be marked by other things. Self-service or complaining or judgment or bitterness. Jesus, over the next several paragraphs, will not play games with his disciples. He will play for keeps. He will even end this sermon by saying that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is actually part of his eternal family. And the call will go out to everyone to consider carefully the path that they are on. And so as we look just at the first of these two contrasts today, we see that there's a serious command. The text in verse 13 begins with enter by the narrow gate. In some ways, we could use this as an application of the first point, what you would that others would do to you, do to them. What was your greatest desire when you didn't know Christ, when you were lost in your sin, when you were far away from God? You needed someone to preach the gospel to you. You needed someone to share with you the way of life. And when you heard it and your ears were open and your eyes were open, you embraced it and you were grateful for it because somebody shared with you how to enter by the narrow gate. But Jesus is going to, as he gives this command, he's, he's reminding us that all throughout Scripture, there are ultimately only two paths, two ways, two roads. 
We see examples all throughout the scriptures as Moses is leading the people of God through the wilderness and brings them to the plains of Moab. They're about ready to go into the land of promise. And he says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and strength of days. When his successor, Joshua, was nearing the end of his life, he gave a similar challenge to the people of Israel and said, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then a few centuries later, the psalmist in Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but stands in the way of, nor stands in this way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The psalm ends by saying, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We hear two ways all throughout at each era, at each age of biblical revelation. There's many more that we could give. I'll just give one more from Jeremiah 21, where the prophet said, under the inspiration of God, God said, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. There are only two paths, ultimately. Only two ways. And the apostle Paul, as he was teaching again in the church of Rome, he said, ultimately, there are only two families in the world. Those who are still in Adam, who are dead in their sins, who are living according to their own ways, seeking to earn favor with God through their own efforts, they're lost and on the wrong road. But there's a second family of those who are in Christ, who are alive in the spirit, who have been forgiven of their sins, have eternal life, and know that it is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ that qualifies them and that can save them. Jesus says there's only two ways, and he's going to explain those two ways. He's going to say the easy way is out. Now, he began this by saying, this, this uh, paragraph by saying, enter by the narrow gate. I think we need to understand this is more than just a plea. It is a command. It's in the command form, second person plural. Enter by the narrow gate. Just as Jesus, when he came and said, follow me, it's a command, not a suggestion. So here, enter by the narrow gate is a command. Because Jesus knows there's only one way to God. There might be many truths that the world gives out, many ways that the world follows, but there's only one path that leads to life. And now the contrast begins. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Now there's some discussion among the commentators, whether this is a gate that leads to the way or a way that leads to the gate. And in fact, in the original language, you can see both of them. But I think we have it rendered well here that there is a gate that leads to the way that we are to take. But I think we understand the overall meaning is clear. There are only two paths and two possible outcomes. There is either life or destruction. There is either, and these are not popular words today, there is either heaven or there is hell. There is no third way. There is no third option. There is no second chance after we die. The decision needs to be made while we are still here on this earth. 
Yes, we are surrounded by religious expression everywhere in many different forms. And that should not surprise us because if we're created in the image of God, we were created to worship. And we will worship. But because of our rebellion and fall into sin, we worship all kind of other things and create all kind of other gods and all kind of other idols. And in North American culture, we're trained from a very young age to run after the gods of money and pleasure and power and prestige and success. And we need to admit it that the ways of the world are attractive. They look beautiful. They even feel good for a season. If they did not, nobody would walk on them. But the road to Christ is narrow. While the road to destruction seems large and open-minded. The road to Christ is exclusive. It flies in the face of a culture that wants everything to be inclusive. The narrow road of Jesus commands self-denial, spiritual discipline, obedience to a king, and patient perseverance and faith. And yet, it is only that narrow road that opens to the great wide open eternity in God's presence. The road to destruction, however, says things like, everybody's doing it. Do what is in your heart. There are a lot more people today that follow Jiminy Cricket than they follow Jesus Christ. Jiminy Cricket said, follow your heart. The Bible says you can't trust your heart. Common expressions today are, you do you. Well, it can't be wrong if it feels so right. Well, you know, people are basically good. Oh, and here's, here's the mantra of the hour. Love is love. Religion is attractive because we like being part of our own solution and our own salvation. Our rebel heart loves to be in charge, loves to get credit for the things that can only be received by grace. And as Jesus has done over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, he reverses the natural order of things. He says the gospel is the mercy of God saving undeserving sinners who have no room to boast, who are completely dependent upon his mercy. That's a message that kills the pride of man, but it's a good news message because it's the only hope that man can receive. We live in a culture where people claim they don't believe in absolute truth, but somehow they know there cannot be only one way to God. They like the idea of God being love, but they deny the reality and ugliness of their sin. They speak of imperfections, mistakes, faults, or that's just the way I am. But they don't talk about the fact that they're in a state of sin. Sinners by nature and sinners by choice. They don't like the idea of the all-holy gaze of God looking on their lives, and they feel guilt and helpless before him, so they want to come up with ways to somehow appease him and appease their own guilty conscience. And Jesus says, I love you too much to play games, and he lays it out. He said, there is a wide road full of self-centeredness and sinfulness and worldly wisdom and man's religion, and it's a way that, frankly, has been around since the beginning, when the serpent tempted our first parents to do it their way instead of God's way. You see, it wasn't Burger King that came up with the jingle. It was the devil himself. Have it your way. And the temptation is 
wide. To be on the wide road is the temptation to be on the wide road, I'm sorry, is wide because it's easy to stay on that road. And it is often sinfully pleasing to stay on that road. But it leads to destruction, which is another way of saying hell. That's how the word is used in other places in the New Testament when it talks about the destruction. This path is wide that leads people away from God, both in this life and in the life to come. And Jesus says many enter it. They want to stay on it. They prefer it. Because they change the definition of sin from rebellion against God to S-I-N, strength in numbers. And they think that somehow they can get away with it because there's a lot more of them on the road than are on the narrow road. But that road that they're on is unstable. It is not solid. It will crumble completely one day for those who remain upon it. But Jesus says there's another way, but it comes with a sobering truth that the difficult way is in. For the, narrow, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Sometimes we want to simplify things and make it so easy that somehow we can increase the numbers. Someone has lived a sinful life all of his life, but some reference is made to a long-ago decision, and we want to somehow say, well, that's enough. Forgetting that God has no stillbirths. When God gives the Spirit of God and there is newness of birth, there is newness of life. We use expressions like, well, his suffering is over, or he's in a better place. No, he's not, because he's not in Christ. His suffering has not come to an end. His suffering has only begun. Jesus makes it hard because he knows it's serious. He wants us to follow his teachings because after all, he alone is the Lord of life. The idea of the narrow gate is that you can imagine most people are on this wide road that's beautiful and well-paved and has all kind of entertainment, but off to the side, there's a narrow gate and it takes a little bit of searching. And it doesn't look as nice. And it's not as crowded. And it doesn't seem as fun. But it's only that gate that you veer off that will bring you on the pathway of life. And so we may ask, well, why is the gate narrow? And I think we can come up with a few reasons. First of all, Jesus is very exclusive in his commands. They're particular. They reflect the character and nature and revelation of God. And, and we're commanded to be as God in our character. But we can't, left to ourselves. He's the creator of all, so he alone has the right to set the rules of the game. And he is the one that said, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be perfect. But how can we be perfect unless we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ? I think a second reason that the what gate is narrow is that truth by its nature is narrow. We have the law of gravity. And we may be tempted to think, well, the law of gravity is narrow. It's, it's unforgiving. I don't like the law of gravity. But it's still best to follow it. But here we have Jesus who is the God-man, who is unique. He's in a category all by himself. He has no comparison. And so when he speaks, he should be listened to. And he says the gate is narrow. Maybe I think the gate is narrow because the truth can be missed. And many do. We resist the narrow way. We, we resist committing to anything. We want to do things our own way and play according to our own rules. And then we want God just to put his stamp of approval on what we have done. 
but he doesn't play by our rules. He gives us every breath that we take. And he has a right to tell us how to live and what the rules of the games are. And the way is narrow because it's only through Jesus. John in chapter 10, he said, I am the gate. And in John 14, 6, a verse that I hope, hope we all know well, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have a universal negative. No one comes to the Father but through me. Because he is the gate. He is also the gatekeeper, and he can set the parameters. And he is the one that said, enter by the narrow gate. It will be hard, but it will be worth it. And then he'll spend the rest of the gospel saying, look, following me is going to be a hard path. It'll be a lifestyle of constant denial, constant repentance, constant surrender, daily dying to self, serving God and others before ourselves. Because he commands, follow me. Get on the path and stay there, Jesus says. And then he'll give the reminder, sobering me, what we need to hear in a few verses that we'll get to in a couple weeks. Not all who claim faith in Christ are actually in Christ. And we do well to listen because he is the word of God incarnate who is speaking. This is a narrow and it's a difficult path, but it leads to a wide, open, and abundantly beautiful eternity. Yes, there'll be denial. There'll be suffering. There might even be death. But consider that there is death on both paths. So pick your death. There is either death to sin and self or death from sin and self. And those two things make all the difference in the world and all the difference in eternity. Therefore, it's time to choose. We all live somewhere, either in God's presence or away. The only question is where. As one commentator says, what we sow here, here will be reaped there, wherever there ends up being for us. So Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. He makes it clear the many will perish, the few will be saved. God owes forgiveness and mercy to no one. Because that's the nature of mercy and grace and forgiveness. But he will be just. To those who walk on the wide path, they will get justice. To those who walk on the narrow path, they will receive mercy and forgiveness and eternal life. But no one will get injustice. The wide and easy path in this life leads to the worst possible outcome. An eternity of suffering in the prison of divine judgment. The narrow and hard path leads to the best possible outcome gloriously living in the presence of God. Have you found the way today? Better yet, has the way found you? Push to the wall. On what are you depending for your eternal salvation? The only correct answer is the righteousness of Christ that has clothed me by faith. The wide road makes no demands. The narrow road says, follow me, die daily that you might live. Yes, this is a difficult statement from Jesus. It's meant to be. It's meant to stir us. It's meant to stir up a desperation in our hearts that we would cry out to God for mercy. So may we cry out 
As C.S. Lewis reminds us, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. And God is going to walk on the stage of history one day, and it'll be over. It'll be too late. It'll be too late to make a decision, too late to turn to Christ, too late to forsake sins, too late to stop living according to the flesh. Today is the day of salvation. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Cry out to God. Say, have mercy on me, even me, a sinner. And he'll place you on the narrow gate. He'll put you on the path to eternal life. Next week, Jesus is going to continue to draw the contrast between two ways of living, showing the difference that the gospel makes in the lives of those who have received it. But what are some lessons that we can learn to apply in the coming week from what we've learned today? First, because Jesus lived the golden rule for us. In his power, we will live it for others. Secondly, because we can only live the golden rule in his power, we will pray for divine wisdom and guidance all along the pathway of truth. It is an ongoing relationship of dependency upon him and his power, but it is the most joyful relationship of dependency we'll ever have. In perfect fellowship with him. Thirdly, though the road may be tough, and we need to tell people it may be tough, we know that to follow Christ is best, so we will walk with others and encourage one another along the path. We need each other. We gather on Sundays for feeding and for encouraging so that as we go out during the week, we can minister to others around us and we get beaten and bruised by the world and we sin and we need to be reminded that God is a great and forgiving God. And so we gather back together to be encouraged and encourage one another and say, keep on keeping on, brother. God is with you. Fourthly, knowing that many are on the path to hell, we will spend our lives calling out to others to get on the path that leads to life. We will do to others what we want them to do to us. And when we were lost in our sins, we were glad that someone did to us. But as we do so, in his power, we will preach the gospel command to follow Christ and do so without fear, hesitation, or compromise. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads. And we're going to do some talking with the Lord. And it might be that someone within the sound of my voice, whether following online or in this room, is frightened to death of what could happen to them because they're not in Christ. I want you to take this opportunity to cry out to Christ even now. To say, Father, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you and I deserve your just wrath. But I confess my sin, and I recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord, who died for sin, and who rose for the justification of those who put their faith in him. Cry out to God to have mercy on your soul, and to forgive you, and say, yes, Lord, I hear your voice, I will follow you. could be that you know someone, a dear one, a loved one, who is still on that wide road of destruction. And I want you to feel the weight of what that means 
and present them to God right now and ask him to open their hearts by his spirit. Father, in these holy moments, we are thankful for a Savior who knows us better than we know ourselves, but who still beckons us, come, follow me, follow me on the path to life. Father, we know that we ourselves during this past week have fallen short in our words, in our actions, in our heart desires. And so, Father, we confess our sins. We don't hide them from you, but we thank you that Jesus has already provided for their forgiveness. And we receive that forgiveness by faith. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you in the week to come to lead us as you have stirred in us the desire to walk in holiness in a deeper way. Give us a burden for the lost to reach out in love to those around us, but also to have a heart full of compassion and love for those that gather around this table and in this room week by week, that we learn to grow and serve and love and help one another as you call us to do. Help us, Father. We need your help, but we turn to you in Jesus' name.